you've been with us uh, throughout the Lenten season this year, you'll know that uh, we've been working through a series uh, that looks at the relationship of God the Son and God the Father and how they worked together to accomplish our rescue, to accomplish our redemption. And our redemption meant that for a time, Jesus would uh, have to come to earth to leave the bliss and the joy of heaven and become one of us, become one of his creation. But as Jesus' time here on earth neared completion, you got a sense that he was eagerly awaiting his return to God the Father and the presence and the bliss of heaven. I can remember during high school, uh, I couldn't wait to go away to college. I was the only one in my family that went away out of state to college, and I couldn't wait. I was excited to to be independent, uh, to go out on my own. But then I remember my parents drove me to college, and uh, they pulled away after having moved me in, and I thought to myself, what have I done here? What have I gotten myself into? And I was filled uh, with all sorts of regret. And so I couldn't wait uh, all throughout that week of classes. I couldn't wait to get to the following weekend where I could uh, finish my classes, hop in my car, and head home. Well, as we've learned throughout the gospel story, Jesus lived, uh, Jesus ministered, Jesus died as a common criminal. What we celebrate this morning on Easter is that Jesus Christ was was resurrected Uh, But as our passage picks up this morning, Jesus is about to ascend back to the Father for good. But before he did that, before his eagerly awaiting returning to the Father could be fulfilled, he had some unfinished business to do with his disciples. And that's what Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 36 to 49 are all about. This is God's word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's Word. Father, we pray that as we look at your Word, as we reflect on it this special Sunday of the year, that your Spirit would come and reveal its truth to our hearts. Father, we confess that we desperately need to hear your voice. We need your Spirit to open our minds to understanding. So we pray for that here this morning. 
But we pray more than anything, Father, that we would leave rejoicing at the fact that the grave could not hold you and that you rose again from the dead. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, all over the world, uh, this morning, Christian pastors are climbing in pulpits just like this one uh, to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they should, because make no mistake, the resurrection is the most pivotal event of the Christian faith. Uh, It's common in our culture today for many to accept Jesus Christ as a good teacher. It's common for people to accept Jesus as a moral figure who embodied uh, the virtues of self-sacrifice. It's common to even admire Jesus as somebody who was willing to die for something he desperately believed in. But when you think about it, history is full of all of those kinds of people. But the resurrection, the resurrection is a whole other thing. Because I'm sure that you know good teachers. I'm sure that you know people who are a good moral example. You might even know people who are willing to die for their convictions, to die for the things that they believe in. But I'm willing to bet that you don't know someone who has been resurrected from the dead like Jesus. When you think about it, it is perhaps the most outrageous claim in all of the scriptures that Jesus did not remain dead, but on the third day he walked out of the grave alive and well and appeared to many witnesses. And so like with any outrageous claim, what do we do? We demand proof of that claim. And so a lot of pastors are going to climb into pulpits this morning and they're going to outline all sorts of proofs about the resurrection. They're going to try to provide evidence as to why you should believe in the resurrection. But is accepting the resurrection ultimately about evidence or is it about something else? Is it about evidence or is it about faith? When you come to our passage this morning, you see that Jesus is personally providing some evidence for his disciples. You see that in the first half of our passage. We get a sense that Jesus' disciples are uh, gathered together in some sort of specific place. And what you get a sense of is that they're caught in all sorts of confusion and disarray. And we can understand why. They just spent three years of their life following one man whom they believed was the Messiah, the promised one. They'd also discovered that one of their own, Judas, had betrayed Jesus to the Jewish authorities, having him arrested. They watched Jesus Christ, their friend, be crucified amongst common criminals. Their eyes, I'm sure, had been swollen from crying and from sadness. And then comes Sunday morning, And they begin to hear reports that Jesus had risen from the dead. And and eyewitness after eyewitness start bringing reports to them that Jesus isn't actually dead, that Jesus is alive. And then suddenly, Jesus is standing amongst them. He's right there. He's with them. The passage tells us that they're startled and frightened, that they think that they are witnessing a ghost who is in front of them. And so what does Jesus do? He proves to them that he is no ghost, that he has resurrected from the dead. 
He has them look at his hands and his feet. He has them touch him to feel that he is real. He even eats with them. It tells us that they eat a broiled fish together to show that he was physically there. Imagine his disciples as Jesus is taking his first bites. Imagine them wondering what was about to happen in front of them. And so touched, taste, hearing, sight, all of these senses are engaged to convince them that Jesus is really there. He is really present among them. You see, he wanted them to understand the material nature to this resurrection, that he wasn't just a ghost, that he wasn't just an apparition. And so Luke awkwardly says this, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I think this is Luke's way of saying they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They couldn't believe what their eyes were beholding. You see, Jesus was physically proving the reality of the resurrection to his disciples. And I actually believe that this is one of the unique privileges that Jesus' disciples get to experience. In fact, Jesus later says to Thomas, one of those disciples, he says this, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Jesus is saying something really profound when he says this to Thomas. He says, sure, there are evidences of the resurrection. But at the end of the day, it isn't about evidence. At the end of the day, it is about faith. Well, what is this thing called faith? We talk about it a lot in the church. What does it mean to have faith in the resurrection? Well, faith, first and foremost, is about understanding We need to understand cognitively that Christ came in time and space and in history to accomplish our salvation, our redemption, to secure victory over sin and death. But faith is is also about veracity. It's also about truth. We can't just understand the bare facts of the Christian story. We have to believe that those things are indeed true that these things actually happened, that Jesus was and is who he said he was. But faith is about one other thing as well. Faith is about trust. It's about despairing of trying to make life work on our own. And in a sense, we abandoned our own self-salvation strategies. We stop trusting in ourselves and instead We transfer our trust to Jesus Christ. And so what we discover is that the resurrection is first and foremost a matter of faith. Jesus really underscores this throughout the rest of the passage. In verse 44, he talks about faith in God's past promises. He says this. He says to them, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. You see, despite Jesus' presence and all the eyewitnesses, Jesus' disciples are still struggling with doubt. They're still kind of wiping their eyes, wondering if this is all really true. 
And so Jesus gently reminds them of this, that this has always been the plan. This has always been God's plan. He talks to them about Moses, the the writer of the first five books of the scriptures, one of the, the heroes of the Jewish people, the man who was responsible for bringing the law down from Mount Sinai. And he reminds them that Moses was pointing to him. Moses was pointing to this, that that none of this should come as a surprise to them. Then he talks to them about the prophets, about Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, all the prophets reminding them that they pointed to this as well. None of this should come as a surprise He talks about David, the author of the Psalms, and says David was actually pointing to this as well, that the Psalms that David wrote that were then used for centuries in Jewish worship, all of them pointed to Jesus and this story. None of this should come as a surprise to them, and yet it does. They're surprised. They can hardly believe their eyes. Why are they so surprised? Well, they're surprised because they're like us. They're surprised because our hearts have grown darkened and lost because of sin. And so what does Jesus do? He said, it says, he opened their minds to understand. He gives them the gift of faith in this moment. And friends, this is what faith is always ultimately about. It is always a gift from God. It's not something that we can manufacture on our own. It's not something that we can conjure up or or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not something that we can receive through various religious obligations. Ultimately, faith is a gift from God. It has always been that way, and it will always be that way. You know, when you think about it, all of us are people of faith, whether we realize it or not. It's really impossible not to be a person of faith. The thing is, we all place our faith in something in order to make our lives work. Maybe for you, you place your faith in your job or your career to make everything work. Maybe you place your faith in your bank account, your money, or your socioeconomic status that you've reached. Maybe you place your faith in your ability to be liked or to accrue power or authority over other people. At the end of the day, most people just simply place their faith in themselves to make life work. But friends, at the end of the day, all of those are self salvation strategies that will leave you empty and afraid. All of those things are are self-salvation strategies that don't really address our real problem in life, which is the problem of sin and death. And so what we place our faith in is extremely important. Jesus reminds us here to place our faith in the promises of God that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, right after mankind fell in the Garden of Eden, God started making all sorts of promises. And the most important one was this. 
He made a promise that at one point he will come in grace to rescue all of humanity. And really, friends, that is the story of the Scriptures. The story is about God making good on the promises that he made. And what we see in Jesus is that the past promises of God are fulfilled. God comes through on the promises that he made that only in Jesus can we be truly saved. But it really isn't just about faith in Christ's past work in history, but it also is faith in God's future promises. And that's what you see in verse 49. It says this, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, what's remarkable about this verse is this, that Jesus doesn't just save us through faith, but Jesus also sends us through faith. Because what Jesus does here is he gives the disciples a job to do. They were to take the message of the resurrected Jesus and spread it. They were to take it back to their family, back to their friends. They were to take it back to their hometowns and the surrounding towns that were around them. They were even to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now imagine their shock in this moment. Not only has Jesus just appeared to them, they're having a hard time just getting their minds around that fact, but now he's commissioning them to change the world with the message of Jesus Christ. And so imagine their doubt. Imagine them wrestling with the calling. Imagine all their feelings of inadequacy about this job that they were being called to do. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus promises to send them a helper. And that helper is really going to do two things. That helper is going to help them to continue to understand the power of the gospel, the message of salvation. But that helper is also going to give them the power to accomplish the mission that God was calling them to do. And what we learn as we read throughout the scriptures is that that helper is God himself, God the Holy Spirit. And we know from the the next couple books of the scriptures, particularly from the book of Acts, that when that Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus' disciples, these men then went out and changed the world for Jesus Christ. But here's what's beautiful about this, friends. That Jesus didn't just give this gift of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, but he gives the same gift to you and to I. See, the Holy Spirit applies the gift of faith to our hearts. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and hearts to understand and apply the power of the gospel. The Holy Spirit gives us power for the mission that we are called to, the mission to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. In short, what this reminds us is this, that God will never, ever leave us. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. Nothing can ever break his promises that he makes to us. And so what should our response be? How ought we respond 
to the truth of the first Easter, the truth of the resurrection? Well, our response ought to be simple. It ought to be faith, clinging to Christ in faith as our Savior, abandoning all of our self-salvation strategies, uh, abandoning all our attempts to make life work apart from Jesus Christ, and instead clinging to the promises of God on our behalf. You see, because Christ has been risen, the promises of God are fulfilled. Because Christ has been risen, you no longer need to fear sin and death. Because Christ has been risen, there is hope for a world that feels so broken. Because Christ has been raised, you can experience life, life eternal. The promises of God are for you, friend. So cling to them in faith. Let's pray.